Welcome to episode 34 of the Practical EdTech Podcast. In this edition, I'm joined by Dr. Latanya Reese Miles, LT Reese Miles, who I had the pleasure of meeting about a month ago in Amarillo, Texas, at Amarillo College. It was lots of fun. So thank you for joining me. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. It's great to be in your company again. Oh, thank you. So for my listening audience, which is mostly K-12 teachers, but also some, some higher ed as well, uh, what is your job title and what, do you, what does your job title actually mean? Because you, <laughs> you have an interesting job title. Uh, and I have an interesting job. Uh, it's Director of First Year Experience at UCLA, which has a distinction of being the most applied to university, I believe, in the country. Sometimes people say the world. Um, I don't have any input on selection, but I do welcome <laughs> the incoming <laughs> class. Um, and that's first incoming first year students. So students coming from high school, there's a whole other office that handles our transfers. Um, and so we get about a class of six, uh, incoming class of about 6,000. And um, there are some big scale opportunities like our welcome week initiatives or our common book program, which we may talk a little bit more about today. Um, and then there are some opportunities to have more of a um, specialized uh, uh, touch, high touch to um, certain populations. So for instance, our out-of-state students and our commuter students and our first-generation college students. So we have special outreach to first years in those populations. Okay, so you have almost subdivisions of your first <laughs> of your first year uh transition basically mm -hmm. right? yeah yeah so let, but let's back up how did you get into the position you're in now because your background was ela right <laughs> so um when i was in my phd program my like any little any good little phd student my plan was to become a tenure track faculty member um, so I was due to do moving along. I was here at UCLA getting my PhD in English and um, I was invited to uh, be a coordinator for the McNair Scholars Program, which was brand new on our campus at the time. And that's a federally funded program to help underrepresented first gen low income students go into graduate school. Well, I had been a McNair Scholar as a student um, and the program director knew that about me, asked me to be a coordinator. So that's how I became more exposed to administration and higher ed. I was finishing my doctorate and working full time in the McNair program. And I loved it so much. I decided then that I wanted to actually stay in administration. So I did the unthinkable. I actually <laughs> applied for and got a tenure track job uh, in Los Angeles and turned it down to stay in administration. Wow. So, um, so I had, that would have been back in 2004. I was doing some work, um, helping to prepare, um, our students to go on to graduate and professional school. Did that for six years, went to Loyola Marymount University for another six years and did some, uh, help uh, build their tutoring program and first generation program. So I actually got recruited back to UCLA for this particular role. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you, this is uh, 
this isn't a temporary thing. You know, sometimes job descriptions like yours, like it's a one year position. This is a, <laughs> this is like, you're in it, right? Don't tell me that. Don't <laughs> no, well, I, I, I only, I only say that because, uh, you know, I'm not full disclosure for everybody out there. I'm not looking for a job, but I just, I, I tend to browse through job, job boards whenever I see them. And I, and, I do too. Know, just kind of came across it the other day, a position for a, school near me i won't say what school it is uh in case the person who's in the job is that doesn't know they're not going to be back um, but i did i did see a, a grant funded position for something similar of transitions right and yeah. usually those grants are kind of like you know one year or two year type of things so yeah yeah that's a good point i will tell you this though it this position uh, the first year experience uh um initiative overall um, was met with skepticism when it was first built, partly because um, people were assuming that first year experience meant that students aren't being retained. And then UCLA um, has a, um, is very blessed to have uh, very strong applicants. And so I always say our students are going to be retained academically. They come in very strong, haven't proven themselves in high school and community college. But another way to look at first year experience, which is I hope I, I would like to think is hopeful for your listeners, um, is how do we increase students' sense of belonging? So not just looking at their academic and classroom performance, but are they engaged? Um, are they uh, going out with their roommates? Are they um, getting off campus? Are they talking to professors? All of those things are important to being successful in college. Right, getting that, that full college experience. Absolutely. Not just dropping into the classroom, doing my work, yeah. and then never, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. 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 I, you know, I, I get to see some of my high school students who've gone off to college and then will come back into into our community. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there is that, like, yeah, went to college, got good grades, but didn't necessarily get invested in in the community. That's so right. Let's we've kind of hinted around it, but let's talk about this idea of the hidden curriculum because uh-huh. that's what really drew me into your talk uh, at, at Amarillo. I was like, I was like, oh. That's the name for all the stuff <laughs> that I've always tried to figure out how to describe to my high school students, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is the hidden curriculum for everyone who's listening? Sure. Um, I'll say this. Once I, once I learned or understood that term, and I believe I was either a young professional or a graduate student, so many things became clear to me. I was like, that's what it was, you know? Uh, (laughs) um, I'm actually going to define it by using an example I think people may relate to and then kind of go back. Um, Our son, our our oldest, went to a Catholic high school and our family is not a Catholic family, right? Mm -hmm. And um, at one point as as a senior, all the students go away to what's called a Kairos retreat. Right. So they go away for a period of time, no electronics. And then the students come back like there is overnight and all this type of stuff. And so then the students come back. Well, anyway, I remember um, getting notifications from the school saying, you know, your son will be here at this time and this day to, you know, to be sure to pick him up from the church. So we show up and then we look around and we see these families that have flowers and candy wreaths and balloons. And we're like, what? What was this? You know? Yeah. And 
So that would be an example of a hidden curriculum because um, as the name implies, there's sort of an expectation or it could be a rule or it could be a belief that is um, not expressed openly, but somehow um, ends up occurring anyway, because no one told us that we should be, that, that's part of this welcoming back process for the yep. students who've been away is to, like, it's a really big deal. You're supposed to have all these things. Um, and yet, that's what happened anyway, right? And so, <laughs> and so I actually use this as an example with my, uh, in, in my classes with students. I said, well, how could this have happened? And the students will point, point out, well, these families probably had prior experience. They may have gone through it themselves. The student, they may have had another student who's gone through it. So this, this um, expectation now gets passed on in an unspoken way. And so I like to use that example because that isn't to say hidden curriculum is an evil agenda. It's not, it is not an evil agenda. Yeah. Um, um, it could, it, like I said, it's just things that um, have at some point have become so normalized, we might say, that they aren't spoken directly. Now, the impact is, is the part that we can try to mitigate more because we felt like we were not being great parents, right? Like, oh, look at everyone. You know, we had nothing. We thought we were going to pick up our kid and take them out to, uh, like, go out to dinner. Yeah. Um, but that, and that wasn't communicated to us either. And so what we ended up having to do is explain to the um, campus ministry, hey, if this is an expectation, um, that can have an impact, then please let people know because we felt embarrassed. And so when you think about, I use this analogy in higher ed where uh, parents of first generation um, college students or students without a lot of college experience come to campus and they've gone through the website and they've read everything, they've done everything that was told, then they realize there's this, uh, there are these things that are not told. Yeah, yeah, well, I think, I was going, I, I took a bunch of pictures of your slides and you were oh. presenting, and I was going through those earlier today. And one of the, one of the slides you had uh, an example of students as a first year college student, first generation college student, yeah. not realizing you don't have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. <laughs> the bathroom. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And that, that's one of those things that I would probably have thought, Oh Yeah. You know, I go to the bathroom, right? Uh -huh. um, but but yeah. you had to learn that at some point. I had to learn that at some point. And, you know, and thinking, I was thinking about this, thinking back on it, the very first college class I ever took was Art History 101. Uh, not an art history major. Uh-oh. Uh, Fun times. Art History 101. I had about 300-something kids in the, in the <laughs> class. Uh, a huge auditorium. And, you know, like most people of later Gen X, there's, a, you know, no one had a cell phone or anything. Right. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. This, you know, this is mid-ish, 1997 was mm -hmm. the class. Um, and I remember going, going like, where do I like where do I sit like what do I you know what do I do like that sort of right. stuff um, you know and my parents had gone to college my mother hadn't graduated but my parents had gone but my father wasn't around so I didn't have that mm -hmm. like what to do sort of thing but I do remember that professor was really good he I can't remember his name for the life of me because uh, there was 
But anyway, a million years ago. <laughs> yeah, you know, twenty three years ago. Uh, but I do remember he was really good about saying right at the get go, like, "Look, I know most of you are here because you have to take art history one hundred and one because you need an art credit, and most of you are most of you are freshmen. Here's a couple of things you need to know about campus. Like mm-hmm. it was just like, you know, he went through like this building. This is a weird building. The only bathroom." The only bathroom is if you go out the back and it's down the down the next next floor. Like I remember that part of it, um, you know. But uh, well, I mean that's that says something right there that you remember you uh, however many years later still remember that, um, and that's it. It takes that kind of transparency, um, that kind of openness uh, to help students who are. Um, negatively benefiting from the <laughs> <in> curriculum. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, so th- there's a lot of these pieces of hidden curriculum that I think are some of us just we assume, right? Uh, or we've kind of forgotten about because we learned them, but then we forgot about, you know, we yeah. forgot about that transition period. Um, you know, at your work at the, at the collegiate level, what kind of things are you recommending to instructors? or to you know, other members of faculty to help them address those little hidden curriculum things? What, what do you mm-hmm. recommend as kind of a first step of like, hey, now that you recognize these things exist, mm-hmm. what can you do? Yeah, usually like one of the obvious places is the course syllabus, right? Um, and so number one, even explaining the function of a course syllabus, what ha- you know, folks have to take a step back. I, when I think of, um, uh, this is my oldest, when he had a syllabus in high school, I remember it was a document that he would hand over to either my husband or myself, and we had to sign, right? So it's this very transactional process. Like, parent, you're verifying that you know this is what the, the student is taking. But this, so the student wasn't really an agent in, in that in that um, trans, in that situation. Now, a syllabus means something totally different when you're in college. So number one, we all need to acknowledge that. But it can be a really powerful tool, um, a powerful intervent- intervention mechanism. So one of the things I actually talked about when you and I were in Amarillo with faculty is how they're using that syllabus. And again, sometimes it just can become pretty routine and swap out the dates, right, and things like that. But um, after having that um, a workshop with them, some of the faculty talked about, inc- like, Oh, a great example is defining office hours. So they will list the office hours um, on their syllabus, but not explain what it is. And so people shared examples of how by clarifying what it means, they actually had more traffic come in because uh, for some populations, they may think, oh, the office hours are the times when you're busy. You're in your office, right? (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Um, well, it makes sense when you think yeah. about it. But um, now some some folks are looking at clarifying like uh, what it is, why you should come, what will happen. Those are the types of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, when you're just talking about the curriculum itself, uh, the, the why are you taking this course? You know, kind of like what your professor did. Like, what yeah. is that step back? Let's not, you know, how can we help? minimize assumptions that that are being made this is a, a useful conversation with parents as well parents and families are are caregivers of our students um so I, I i guess i'd like to think of myself as someone that's 
always being a person who's like pointing out hidden curriculum and something <laughs> like how do, how do we know how do we know what we know and then how can we help others know this thing as well right. and well and i think this is just my own perspective on I'm, I'm now i'm teaching a new i'm teaching a new course next year uh, and so now as i think about it, it you know the courses i'm teaching are for high school students uh, mm -hmm. but still thinking about okay, kids coming into my program and my school are coming into a, a tech program a tech technical school as opposed to a traditional academic high school right? right so we have some we have some things that are different and honestly i'm still figuring out what some of those things are because i'm new to this i'm new to the school mm -hmm. this year you know mm -hmm. having worked in the same district for a long time but then changing schools like the school itself has some different ways of setting up it's a little bit different uh so i'm starting to think about those things of like you know what is an expectation in academic school is not necessarily yeah. something you have to do at our tech school like i don't get, write out bathroom passes because like, i've got 10 kids and i can keep track of them really easily like <laughs> right <laughs> If 10% of you are missing, right. you're going to know. I know where you are, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so just, just, just things like that. So let, let's use that as a transition. For those of us who are at a high school level, whether that's a you know, guidance counselor or you know, you're teaching junior or senior year students, what can we do to help kids who are going to college, particularly first generation mm -hmm. students, do to kind of get a jump start on navigating that hidden curriculum, particularly if the college they go to doesn't have a program in place. What, what mm -hmm. can we do? Yeah, great question. One, uh, as you were describing the new experience you're about to have, I was thinking um, how important it would be to share, like, you know, I like to, to, uh, be clear about your own narrative, your own position, right? Like, this is new to me as well. Th those types of connections, uh, that kind of storytelling, will number will build trust and create opportunities um, for for people to identify what these new um, what these new experiences may be. New, and those experiences experiences could be key terms that you know we may be taking for granted that they know. But if you don't build the trust with the students, then that's going to be harder to to overcome. Um, what are some other things? Um, oh, oh, well, going back to the uh, storytelling part too, I think is um, it's also important when students know when you haven't done something well, or sharing your own um, educational journey or history, whether it's first generation or not. Just knowing where you're coming from is is really crucial. If if someone if the instructor happens to be first generation, um, then of course that may really resonate with a student who will be first generation as well, and so that they can see themselves in the pipeline, right? Like, oh, this person is, you know, like me for whatever reasons. I, I can, uh, I can do this too. Um, this, I'm trying to think of some other things. I, I was just talking to someone uh, who is a high school instructor, and she was telling me how she was teaching new material. And rather, and she started to get stuck. She started, there was like something that she was not familiar with. Mm -hmm. So she said, rather than sort of plowing through it, she actually was very um, open with her students to say, 
I think we're going to stop here, you know, that I need to go brush up on whatever. She's, she's a math instructor as well. Okay. <laughs> she, she had to go um, uh, brush up on whatever it was. And I thought, man, what a, first of all, she put herself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. But I think the rewards that come from that are so much greater had she's just sort of stuck to her guns in the, the day's lesson plan and just uh, faked it. Um, let me see. What are some other things? Um, I, you know, where, where I, what I often hear, Richard, sometimes is students will tell me once they get to college, oh, my high school teacher told me college was going to be like X, Y, and Z, and it's not like that, actually. Um, and so, so, so things change really, really quickly in our, um, in some ways, things change really quickly in our, in our educational landscape. So sometimes it's just helpful for um, teachers to um, to know what's currently going on at colleges and universities. Um, I'm trying to think of what what was some of those well, things. That, that, I don't want to. I'm going to interrupt. Oh, you. Go ahead. That, that's a good point because again, I live in a small community, uh -huh. and I've had kids go off to the same college that I ended up gradu graduating from, not the one I started at, but the one I, I graduated from. Those kids, you know, are having a totally different experience than what yeah. I did. Yeah. 20, something years ago, right? Absolutely. Because 20 years ago, again, there was a computer lab, and that was the only place you could use a computer. You know, like things like that. Like, yeah. You know, like my experience now for them is, I can't even tell them where the dining hall is, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I can even give them that. I can, tell them, I can tell them some stories about, you know, where we played beer pong, but, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but that's not, that's definitely not an appropriate story to tell a high school student. Uh, you know, so yeah, that's that's a really good point. The, the landscape does definitely, definitely change. Uh, libraries are very different now. The way students communicate with their um, parents and families are really different. You know, I was I was in high uh, college at a time when there was this thing called a long, long distance phone bill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> calling um, cards. Calling. Oh my. Oh, you took yep. me back. Yeah. Th those are. Th you know, that's really different. And then when you mentioned um, computer labs, like. That, the idea of having to be tied to a particular space to do your work is not the same um, as, as it is right now where, you know, everyone, not, not everyone, I don't, I don't want to um, overgeneralize, but a, a personalized, individualized laptop is so much more common than, let's just say, even 10 years ago. Yeah. So things are shifting really rapidly. So, and I know that our instructors already have a lot on their plate, but it does help to just be mindful that, uh, colleges and universities really are very different places right now. Yeah, but the the other little library you mentioned the library reserve yeah. reading that was the other thing that that art history teacher <laughs> explained to us is where to go to get these reserve readings that were in the library. It was like, mm -hmm. yeah, that was one of those things. I was like, that was really helpful to know, like, yeah, what floor that was on. Right? Okay, guess what I it was on the guess what I found out today. So what, say it again. It was on the fourth floor at Central Connecticut State University's <laughs> library. I can I can still tell you that. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you what I learned today. I sat in on a presentation, updated presentation on the library. So you know how we had old school reserves? You can go now and have what you need scanned and sent to your email as a PDF. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> you don't just have to check it out and stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's tell you you have some other interests or things you're doing. I, I know today you were facilitating a Twitter chat, right? Oh my gosh! Uh, so 
what's the, the the Twitter chat that you that you lead or facilitate? What's that about? Okay, look, that was my first time what doing that. Yeah. Oh wow! Awesome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, that was an awesome experience. I I learned. I was learning on the fly as I was doing it with a colleague, and so I never used TweetDeck before. You'll be so proud of me. That's that's great. I love TweetDeck. <laughs> This is my first time, friend, and it was so great to to like manage all the responses that were coming in and then be able in my replies to people to connect them to someone else who made a prior um, a relevant comment. So um, so one of our, my latest passions is about identifying specifically uh, first gen populations who are also, who are black or African-American. Um, interestingly enough. I was really surprised about this, but there is not a lot written about this population. It from since 2008, five published articles. Uh, that's it. That's it. Really? That's it. Not kidding. Wow. Yeah. That is um, that is really shocking. That is really surprising. It's 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 shameful, really, right? And so a, a group twelve of years. Colleagues. That's like one article every two years, less than two years, or what? It's yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, that's not much. Not much, as opposed to, let's say, Latino students or Hispanic students. There's a lot more published about them being um, first-gen and Latino, but for right. Black, no. Um, and so I've convened a group of colleagues across the country, and we've been um, talking about this issue on, uh, like, monthly calls. And um, together we wrote a call to action that's going to come out in about a week or two. And as a lead-up to that, um, we decided to have a live Twitter conversation just to see, you know, what, what are folks out there thinking? And it was, um, one, you know what, one of the things that came up quite a bit are pre-college experiences and the role of guidance counselors in particular. Of, okay. um, and unfortunately, many people experience discouragement from their guidance counselors um, and, uh, and um, just overall lack of support in high school. So that's before the student even gets to college, right? right. So coming in with uh, uh, having experienced some barriers. But um, overall, I think that um, it was, um, People were talking about the the. Wait, hang on one second. Yep. Uh, overall, people. Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> uh, there's a. I think people were starting to recognize the need to um, to really focus on this population and think about well, what is the significance of being African American and first gen? Um, what are either the historical or cultural um, uh, uh, unique qualities of those of that position of that identity, and then how does it impact them if they are the first in their families to go to college? Wow. So uh, I, I want to just push you a little bit on on this mm -hmm. the the discouragement from mm -hmm. guidance counselors is that things like saying that college might not you might not get into that college that sort of thing or is that okay. Yeah, like college isn't for you, um, either at all. College isn't for you, or particular colleges are, are not for you. Uh, even uh, listen, even in my own case, I did not go to my assigned guidance counselor. Um, I went to the, my guidance, the guidance counselor that my that were my friends had assigned to them because she was just more openly supportive. 
of black students. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to remember who my high school guidance counselor is now and I couldn't tell you. It'd be, yeah. Yeah. I saw that person once, maybe, twice, maybe once a year to and say, you know, what are you going to take next year? <laughs> yeah. and, and since you and I have been in high school, the ratio of guidance counselors to students has, well, how do we want to put this, sharply declined, I guess. So like for some public high schools in particular, we're talking one to 3,000 students. What? No kidding. As opposed to like pro small private schools where um, this, uh, the, uh, the guidance counselors are more accessible. Um, there's uh, schools, public schools are facing um, shortages are having their guidance counselors cut. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That's not seen as the front, not front line, but that's not an instructional position. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, yeah my, my friends that are librarians, Oh. It's the same thing, right? Because yep. that's yep. not like anyone can put away books, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's not, that's not <laughs> what they do, right? <laughs> right. That's not what they do. Believe right. me, librarian friends, you know, yeah. I know that that's not what you really do. Yeah, um, librarians are awesome. Yes. Um, so uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, where are you speaking next and or where can people learn more about your work and follow you and get involved? Um, so I'm not speaking again until Baltimore, uh, at the NASPA Student Success Conference. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure which proposal I'll be talking about. I submitted a few, including on Black first-gen students, but I want to tell you something that was, is really exciting news. In April, I'm going to be inducted into the National First Gen Honor Society. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So North Central College, right outside of Chicago yeah. in, Naper in Naperville, Illinois, reached out to me. They're having, I can't remember, I think it's their second cohort of inductees um, and uh, invited me to be an honorary member of this group. And here's a even cooler than that. My daughter is going to be there as well since she goes to college right outside of Chicago. That's awesome. And my daughter will get to watch me be inducted into this uh, society. It's going to be really cool. That, and what, and what, what, what's the date for that? April 17th, Friday, April, April 17th. 17th. Yeah, if anyone's in the Chicago area, stop on by. <laughs> All right. Awesome. That, that is really cool. Uh, Cool. And so you're, are you going to do it? Are you going to do another Twitter chat? Are you going to leave another Twitter chat or what do you think? You know what? I think I'm the victim of being too successful. I think we might have to. All right. Good. <laughs> Very good. Very I'll good. be sure to let you know. All right. Uh, and I'll, and I'll be sure for everyone who's listening to the podcast, I'll be sure to link up uh, LT's Twitter account so you can see what the chat is all about and, uh, and, and join in. Absolutely. Join in yourself and, and chime in. Um, and if you happen to have a chance to be at the NASPA con conference and you want to see a really awesome speaker and presenter, I highly recommend it. So uh, it was enlightening for me. And this, again, was enlightening for me as well. So thank you so much for all your time and, uh, and all, the, all the great work you're doing. And uh, I hope lots of people are now more aware of <laughs> curriculum and, and helping uh, and helping students navigate that. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a, a blast and I knew it would be.
My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was Dr. Latanya Reese Miles, LT Reese Miles. It was a fun conversation for me, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And after we were done recording, we mentioned that we might want to do another one of these. And so look forward to that perhaps later in 2020. As always, thanks for listening to the Practical EdTech Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.